0: Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Uh, what I want to do is uh, I want us to pray, and then we're going to start with a framing question like we did last week, and it's the same framing question, and remind ourselves of where we are in the book of Acts, and then we are only going to get through Acts chapter 15 and 16 today. The goal will be to get halfway through this second missionary journey of Paul today, and then next week to finish that second missionary journey, hopefully then to jump into the third. My hope is, with Easter week being off, to finish either at the end of April or the very next week, the first Sunday in May. That's my hope. Uh, I tried to map that out Wednesday earlier this week when I was putting content together, and I think it's doable for us. I don't want to go too fast at the same time. We could be here all the way till July, and I know that at that point it'll just be me in the room, (laughs) most likely. Um, So I'll pray for us. We're going to get started today in Acts 15. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, I am grateful for the honor, the privilege of uh, being in this room With this group of believers. God, we're going to find ourselves, as you know, today in Berea uh, with a group of uh, Jewish believers in the synagogue who are eager to study your word. And God, I'm thankful that uh, we find that to be true here today. Uh, God, I pray you'll find me faithful, uh, God, in the places where um, I need you to speak. And I pray that, uh, God, you'll not let me get in the way. um, But God, I also pray that you'll help me to. Um, facilitate uh, this conversation and to lead us closer to your heart, uh, closer to listening to your word, and then living that out. Uh, God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The framing question we had last week, um, really in the book of Acts, we come to, I think, what becomes, scholars say this too, what becomes the heart of the book of Acts. And we ask the question, how did we get here? You know, how did we get here? And sometimes that is a good question for us to ask, even when it comes to the lesson, because we are now in week 10 of this. Thank you for holding on. Uh, boy, it's gone by in some ways fast and sometimes, uh, very slow. And so there's a dynamic where we go, okay, how did we get here in the book of Acts? And we need to look back. Let's look back just today to Acts chapter 10, Peter and Cornelius the Gentiles, Peter unlocks the door for the Gentiles to come to faith. Let me actually reframe that. The Holy Spirit does it first, okay? And Peter just acknowledges what the Holy Spirit has done. And so we're going to find, this is going to be the third time, Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 15, that Peter's going to tell the story of Cornelius the centurion and the Holy Spirit coming on them, even before they were baptized, coming on them. And that being for Peter enough evidence to go, Oh, God means what he says. Thus, the dream three times. Peter needs things three times. Okay. The dream, food. Okay. Peter, I want you to take and kill and eat. God, this is unclean food. And that food being symbolic more than just food, it's eating with those who are Gentiles. Food is going to come up again today in the Jerusalem Council or in this meeting of the leaders in the church. Now, that word council is a little bit imposed on the text from church history, so we're going to talk about that as well. But I just remember, Acts 10, Acts 11, Peter twice tells the story. We're about 10 years after that event, if our chronology is correct. So decades gone by where the church is kind of figuring out what does this Gentile inclusion mean and what are all the implications of that? And what's going to happen is this is going to come to a culmination to this moment in Acts chapter 15 where the apostles, and I think Luke when he uses the word apostles is talking about the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias, and the elders... The elders specifically being those who are responsible for the leading and teaching of the churches, specifically in Jerusalem and Antioch, although there may be some overlap as well from other uh, churches. The key players in this conversation, you're going to notice, are going to be Peter, not a surprise, going to be James. I thought James was 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 already killed. Well, this is James, the brother of Jesus, nicknamed in church history James the Just, because of his leadership decisions, Um, but he is a leader or an elder. Uh, Paul calls him an apostle, a sent one, uh, in the church in Jerusalem. So you're going to find that he, as the leader in Jerusalem, is going to give what what looks like a judgment or a a verdict of this council, of this meeting of the apostles and of the elders. They're going to come together, and they're going to be discussing How did we get here and where do we, so we can add another question, where do we go from here? So in Acts chapter 15, this is a bit of a hinge for us. There's a dynamic to where the Gentile inclusion has been promised and and foretold and then happens in Acts chapter 10. Then we have Paul's first missionary journey and there's this like practical um, application of this. Paul's going to the synagogues. Oftentimes, the messianic message there is rejected, not by all, but by many. So Paul does what Jesus does. He turns to the Gentiles, and they accept the gospel. Paul has just come back. Here's where we left off. Paul has come back to Antioch and has reported all of the things that the Holy Spirit, all of the things that God has done. And that leads us to this question mark. Okay, how how did we get here? And where do we go from here? Because it's a tipping point. Uh, To use a Maxim Gladwell uh, uh, phrase, this is a tipping point in the church. Things are drastically changing. There's even a dynamic in the Roman Empire that's changing. Because Judaism, the Jewish religion, was considered a legal religion. But the question mark that's going to continue to grow as we move on from even Acts chapter 15 and beyond, as the church continues to expand into the Roman Empire, remember where we're going, we're going to Rome. One of the questions that's going to happen, one of the tensions that's going to grow is this. Is this really Judaism? By The, Ro- the Roman government's going to be asking this question. Is this just a Jewish sect or is this something different? Because if it's a Jewish sect, then fine, it's legal. But if it's something different, and if it's a threat to Rome, then it's a threat to Rome and we need to take it seriously. You're going to notice that this is going to come up again and again. Even when it comes to those who are the Jewish people who reject their Messiah, uh, Paul's going to use the phrase Judaizers. Uh, We're going to see the Pharisees in Acts chapter 15 again. They want to push the fact that, no, this is not Judaism. This is not the same thing. This is something other. In fact, they have their own king they are promoting. Now, all of a sudden, Rome needs to take this seriously as something else. This is not a legal religion. This is something that has become something of entire of its own and is a threat of rebellion or insurrection. Thus, we have riots and we have things like the protests and things like that that happen in Roman cities, it's going to lead eventually to Paul's arrest. And like Jesus, like Jesus, Paul's arrest is going to be because, in part, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, excuse me, the Jewish leaders are jealous of him and of all of the people turning to Jesus. They're jealous of Jesus, just like they were jealous of Jesus at the end of the book of Luke. And that's going to turn into an accusation to the Roman leaders. It was Pilate for Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And here it's going to be Felix and Festus and eventually Rome and the emperor himself. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Are you leading this rebellion that is a kingdom here on earth that is meant to stand in juxtaposition to Rome? You know this, the cross itself of Jesus, crucifixion, was reserved for those who rebelled or were insurrectionists, thus the two crosses beside Jesus, against Rome. It was a billboard, in many ways, that said, if you want to lift yourself up above Rome, we'll lift you up above everybody else on a cross. Here is Jesus, the King of the Jews, the sign said. Okay? This is meant to be a billboard that says, if you rebel against Rome, whether you're a slave and you lead a slave rebellion, Roman history, They lined the roads with crosses, telling people, don't rebel or lift yourself up against Rome. But what happens in this is what we have is that this actually did lift Jesus up, doesn't it? It glorifies Jesus. And this becomes this perpetual thing that we are called to live out as we live this out as well. So Paul does this same thing, and it becomes a threat. Jesus and the kingdom becomes a threat to Rome as we continue in the book of Acts. So again, how did we get here? And then Acts chapter 15 pivots and asks the question, where are we going? So what do we do with all of these Gentiles? How do they live? Do they need to be circumcised first? Do they need to become Jewish proselytes first? Or can we continue with what's been taking place with them coming straight to Christ through faith alone? But then there's also the hanging out question, but do they need to change some things? Like, do they just continue being pagans and living their life out, like how they've been living? Or are there some, some responses to the allegiance they have to Jesus? So you can imagine, we have a summary of this dialogue. You can imagine this caused some, in fact, Luke's going to say it, some, are, no little debate, I think, is the way he phrases this. Um, There's some dispute. There's some conversation that's going to take place in Acts chapter 15. Okay, so that's where we pick up. If you want to open your Bibles there, um, I'm going to read a little bit for us. And then uh, I'm going to try to take my time with diving into the text, making some observations, and then asking you if you have questions. So Acts chapter 15, starting verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. That is in Antioch, by the way. Why are they coming down? When they're going north to Antioch, because they're going down in elevation to the Jewish people, Jerusalem was always up in elevation. It was also a theological ascent. So that's always weird for us when we're reading the Bible to hear they're going down and we're like, on the map, it's actually the opposite way, okay? So they're going down, some people are coming down, and here's what they're teaching. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved, Now, we would go, well, that's weird, but we get it. We understand that dynamic, that Jewish people would say, we want them to become Jewish first, and then accept the Jewish Messiah. You get the logic, don't you? And yet, Acts chapter 10, and what we've seen already in the book of Acts, you can read Galatians and Romans, to get this unpacked even further, says, no, we are saved through coming to Christ alone. In fact, the covenant of baptism, Paul argues, is in place of that covenant of circumcision. It is a circumcision of the heart. And so when we come, the Holy Spirit circumcises the heart. This is actually one of the critiques of the Jewish people in the prophets, is that they were circumcised, but their heart was not circumcised. Their heart was not following God in the same way that their ceremonies were. Now, I could argue the same thing about baptism, by the way. okay. Sometimes we can have a ceremony and not actually have a heart that says, I am loyal to, allegiant to, Repentant of and walking in uh, Christ and in his presence. So there's a little bit of a hint here that I want to ask. And, and this is maybe a question that, that I want to pose to you for a conversation, depending on how outgoing you are today. Um, sometimes we add something to come to Jesus, but you also have to come to this persuasion in order to actually be a legitimate um, a, a conversion. So Jesus and, let me phrase it that way, Jesus and. So Jesus and a a political persuasion, okay? Jesus and dress a certain way, okay? Jesus and this particular behavior or an avoidance of this particular behavior. And so the gospel becomes diluted with a legalism that says, Jesus and you have to do this. Any, Any thoughts or examples of that? Maybe even some silly examples of that. You all are laughing already. Okay. Thoughts about it? I'm not going to volunteer you just because you laughed. Okay. Okay. So I want you to wrestle with this tension in the text today, because one of the tensions I'm wrestling with, we're going to see that the council's going to come to this and say, okay, it's by grace alone, by faith alone. But they also then tell those who are Gentiles, but we also want you to avoid meat sacrifice to idols and uh, pornea, which is uh, sexual immorality. It's not just adultery in a marriage, although that's included inside of that. It's bigger than that. Um, But it's the kind of sexual immorality, especially that Gentiles had facilitated around pagan uh, or or idolatrous uh, temple worship and feasts. So we have meat-sacrifice idols and feasts sometimes connected to other things, whether they were just stereotypes imposed on that by the Jewish people or they actually happened. And there's some of both. Okay, there's some yes and. And so we're going to find there's a, but if you are truly allegiant to Jesus, these are some things you probably ought to avoid. Now, there's some tension there, isn't there? Like when I come to Jesus, I'm coming, and I am coming the way that I am, but when I come to Jesus, I should also then recognize my allegiance to Jesus should cause me to avoid some allegiance to some other things. So this is going to be big for the Gentiles because temple worship and temple activity and feasts were economically advantageous to an individual. That's where you did business networking. So if they're going to say no to some of those things, it's going to cost them something. Um, When it comes to social groups and social status, it's going to cost them. In fact, what's ironic is in church history and even here in the book of Acts, we're going to find that those who were insiders who become now outsiders of the Greco-Roman world become insiders in the church, they're going to be accused of love feasts and cannibalism and some of the very same, same or similar kinds of things. Why? Well, because when we take communion, what are we doing? Oh, we're eating the blood and flesh of Jesus. Well, we're not. But can you imagine the stereotype or the the rumor mill? Okay? And we talk about one another as brothers and sisters in fellowship with one another. We are one family together. Okay? So there's an allegiance shift that's going to have to take place. I want us to pay attention to this dynamic because that's going to be really important coming out of Acts chapter 15. We've gotten one verse in. Can you tell that we may not get through all of it? We'll try. We'll do our best. Verse two, after Paul and Bartimus had no small dissension and debate with them. I love this phrase. Is it okay for the church at times to have dialogue and difficulty walking through difficult issues? You need to hear this. It is okay. Okay. Wherever two or more are gathered, there will be conflict. Okay. I've said that before. Jesus also promises wherever two or more are gathered, what does he say? That's the actual quote, by the way. I will be with them. Now, I know this is true. Sometimes we get together two or three people and we're like, oh, I'm glad Jesus showed up because we have two or three people. No, theologically we believe Jesus is always with us, okay? He's always there whether two or three are there. What is he saying in that quote? He is saying when it's difficult, when there is a problem, when there is someone you need to confront, when someone has sinned against you, when you've sinned against a brother, when there's dissension or division, I am there in the middle of that. One of my, my, the ways I'd frame that up is we need to be aware that Jesus is with us in the midst of difficulty as much as we are when he's in the midst of communion. Okay? Jesus is with us as much as he's in the midst of conflict as he is in the moments of communion. And I'll be honest, I need Jesus in those moments to help us be unified, to come out with wisdom, and to come out um, with glorifying him. So there's dissension, there's debate. Paul and Barnabas are there, and some of the others who were appointed, they're going up to Jerusalem now. They're going south, but up in elevation. And who's there? The apostles and the elders. Another thing that's going to happen as a, how did we get here, and where are we going? You're going to notice that the leadership role in the church is slowly going to shift, even in the book of Acts, As uh, elders are appointed, and some of the responsibility, I don't like office language or power language, but it's family. So, some of the responsibilities of teaching and leading in the family of God and leading these individual churches is going to be handed over to the elders. That's going to be indicative here, and it's going to continue out into the future of the book of Acts. So, Paul, Barnabas are sent on their way. They go through, notice they go back through Phoenicia. They're going back south, back down through Samaria. And they're describing all that's happened with the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brings joy to all of these brothers. Of course it did, right? In the same way that it brought joy before when these people in these regions were converted. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they bore testimony, Here's what God has done on this first, what we call the first missionary journey. I'm sure Paul didn't call it that, okay? Um, but at the same time, he is giving this report. However, verse 5, some of the believers belong to the party of the Pharisees. They rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order them to keep the law of Moses. So we have two covenants. The covenant uh, that is given to Moses, the covenant now that we have in Christ, We gave some Old Testament passages last week out of Jeremiah and out of Ezekiel as examples that foretold from the Old Testament that there would be a new covenant and that our hearts would be, we would be given a new heart. Um, This is part of the shift that is taking place here. Does the covenant in Christ uh, supersede, take the place of, this prior covenant that was given to Moses. This dynamic of circumcision is part of that question. Notice this is not all Jewish people. I've emphasized this every week, okay? This is not promoting anti-Semitism, okay? This is saying there was a group of the Jewish people, specifically here, the political group of the Pharisees. And one of the things that was happening with the Pharisees is they were actually taking some of the laws of Moses that were for the priests and saying even some of the Jewish people like Peter, a fisherman up in Galilee. Even even some of the rest of the Jewish people who are not priests needed to abide by some of these priestly laws as well. So you're going to see Peter say, man, we couldn't hardly bear this yoke that the Pharisees specifically were putting on us. Same thing Jesus said. You, as teachers of the law, you put a heavy yoke on the people that you yourselves are not willing to bear. Okay, Some of this is not just the law of Moses, but it's the traditions. You, You mentioned some of this. It's the extra traditions and the oral teachings that they were piling on top of that. So Sabbath law became not just about rest, but it became about all these laws where you can't walk this far, and you can't uh, do this kind of work on the Sabbath, and you can't plant these kinds of things, and you can't even eat by rubbing grain of wheat together in your hands. It became all of these traditions that instead of rest, almost, I mean, it'd make me paranoid as a rule keeper, like I'm going to break a rule. Or if someone falls, if someone's sick, that's what made Jesus most angry, didn't it? You guys, will, you guys will reach down in a well and pull out your animal, but this sick person, because they were healed on the Sabbath, you were upset. And in Luke's gospel, five out of six times when Sabbath is mentioned, there's going to be conflict because of this dynamic that plays out with the Pharisees. So when Luke mentions Sabbath in the Old Testament, that's significant. So we have this dynamic that's playing out here. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is why this is called a council. Again, spelled wrong on my handout. I apologize. Verse 7. After there had been much debate. Do you realize here that Luke's summarizing for us was probably an extended event. Okay? Um, I wish we had this recorded. I'm not going to lie. Like, I really wish we had this dialogue that was here. I'm glad that we have Luke's account of it. And he's going to summarize even some of the statements that are made. Okay? This is a this is normal for um, ancient historians to take what is an extended dialogue and go, let me give you the core truth of that. Now, we live in a world where we record everything, unfortunately, right? And yet, fortunately, if you're gone. Sorry, if you're listening to this recording. Now, but there is a dynamic where we live in a world, anachronistically, where we go, give me the manuscripts. And that's not the world that they were living in. Um, but we have this historical account of this situation that summarizes this event. So there's much, not much debate. Now what do we have? We have testimony and stories. This is an ancient convention and yet we still have this today. Okay, we need to make a hard decision. What do we do? Well, we get the stakeholders together. We bring in eyewitnesses or those who have testimony or we have an open forum and we have a microphone in the room and you know, it's school board. And so parents can come in and they can give testimony. They can give stories. They can give narrative. And then those who are responsible for the decision need to make the decision. In the ancient context of a city or of a people, this is a normal kind of behavior. So, Peter stands up. Brothers, you know in the early days, God make it a choice among you, that by the mouth of Gentiles, uh, they should hear the word of God and believe. And God knows the heart, and he bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a neck, on the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe we will be saved. This is a good verse for us, verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. What saves the Jewish people? The grace of the Lord Jesus, that they were looking forward to. This Messiah that would come, that would, Jeremiah, give them a new heart okay, that would save them from their sins. Hebrews puts it this way, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest, all of those were a shadow of the one who was to come. All of those, our sins are being held up, and he is the one who cleanses those, who cancels the record of debt. This covenant in Jesus saves the Jewish people in the same way that it saves the Gentile people, but those who are Gentiles don't have to become Jewish first to become part of the covenant of Jesus. So Peter's a pretty big, uh, if you're going to have an eyewitness and have someone stand up for you, uh, Peter's pretty important. We can acknowledge that. Uh, Jesus even saying, Peter, you have these keys. Whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. So what happened? Ananias and Sapphira, they lied, they die, bound. This is an example of Peter opening a door or loosing, and yet he's just the line leader. He's the one responsible, and we have others who are also responsible with him. Verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. Now, this could be because of what Peter said or because of what happens next. Uh, When it comes to the original language, notice the way that it's phrased here is they fell silent because Barnabas and Paul are now talking about all of the wonders and signs and the Gentiles who come to the faith, verse 12. Weird, Weird little tidbit. Once again, we have Barnabas listed first in Jerusalem. Now, we saw that flip that happened. Remember that when Sergius Paulus was converted? That after that, Paul was listed first? Why Barnabas now? Well, I think it's because we're back in Jerusalem. Remember, Barnabas was the one who said, uh, hey, this Paul guy, he's legitimate. Like, he was legitimately uh, converted. And and so in Jerusalem, Barnabas has some sway, uh, some positional uh, strength that still puts him in this position, perhaps of being named first in this particular instance. They finished speaking, and now who is speaking? Notice how summarized that was. Barnabas and Paul. Well, that's because we just had the entire account of that in the Gospel of Luke of all the things that happened. So, You know, I doubt Paul limited it to one sentence, knowing Paul. Okay, but he's relaying the entire first uh, missionary journey we've just talked about. And so then, James, this is the brother of Jesus who stands up. Now, we know this about James James was a half brother of Jesus. So after Mary and Joseph had Jesus, they had other children. This is listed in the Gospels. I give you the Mark reference that's here. James is one. Jude or Judas is another. And, and uh, I can't remember the last name. Simeon, or I think Simon is the third. And then there's multiple sisters that are listed as well, uh, listed anonymously as well. So James is one of Jesus' brothers. Um, we find multiple references. I give them to you out of the Corinthian correspondence out of Galatians uh, Paul mentions James in Galatians as being an apostle, brother of our Lord, and we have the example of James's letter. There are some echoes in James' letter of this incident as well. This idea of being saved by faith, and yet in our faith, faith produces what? What does James say? Works. Like it, the allegiance to Jesus changes how we then live. And so James is here in this particular moment. He seems to have a key role in the church in Jerusalem, not only here, but in Galatians as well. We'll come back to Galatians in just a moment. And he says, Brothers, listen to me. Uh, Excuse me. Going back to make sure I get it right. After they finished, uh yeah, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon or Simon, notice Peter's Hebrew name here, or Aramaic name. Why that, rather than the more Greek version? I think because of this Jewish context, okay? He, Peter is a Jew giving testimony about the Gentile inclusion of uh, talking about Cornelius. That's perhaps the reason why. They're in Jerusalem, after all. He's related how God first visited the Gentiles and take it from them a people for his name. That phrase is an Old Testament phrase, okay? That's actually a phrase that Israel has remember what we said last week? Do not take on the Lord's name, what's the phrase, in vain. And it's not just don't use God's name as a cuss word. It does mean that, but it means more than that. Don't take on God's name and then take it lightly, okay? So the Gentiles are now included in that dynamic, according to James here. And with this, um, James then quotes Old Testament, verse 15 and, and, and 16. The prophets agree, after this, I will return, James says, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebu- rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes known these things from old. What's James doing here? Okay, he's, quoting, or he's quoting the Old Testament saying, okay, this was always part of God's plan. And this Gentile inclusion, we've seen it in Isaiah, we see it in Amos, over and over again. So, James here is, like Peter, giving this testimony to say, this has been God's plan. And so, therefore, they come out with judgment. Let's kind of get to the judgment, and then I want us to go a little bit faster through some of the implications of, so now what? Therefore, James says, verse 19, here's my judgment. It's that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, to from sexual immorality, and that which has been strangled, and from blood. All of those things, by the way, connected with idolatry, okay? So if, if we are going to be, and I, I'm going to use this language, if we're going to be one family, here's a concession I need you as Gentiles to make so that we can sit at the table together. Notice it's still food-centered. We as Jewish believers are going to eat with you, and in that sense, even eat food that we culturally would have previously been seen as unclean. And yet there's also a concession that says, but food sacrificed to idols is going to be a a uh, consciousness issue that's going to cause us to compromise. Now, you know this. Paul's going to later write about this. What about food sacrificed to idols? Well, there's freedom in Christ because those who don't believe in idols know there's no such thing as idols. And and yet, at the same time, we need to look out for the weaker brother who is looking at this and going, I can't eat this because it's going to make me feel guilty. So we've got to do a family thing we got to do this together. This is part of that, that attitude, part of that tone as this letter goes out uh, to the Jewish and to the Gentile people. So they write this letter. This letter becomes this um, uh, letter that Paul's going to take. We're going to see it come up later on again as well. So verse 22, this, what James said, seemed good to the apostles, to the elders, to the whole church. So they chose men, delegates, from among them and sent them back north or down to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent... Barsabbas, and let me highlight this word or name for you, and Silas, because Silas is going to travel a little bit later with Paul. And they sent them with the letter. Here's the letter. I think it's a summary of the letter, okay? The, the brothers, the apostles, and the elders. To the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, in other words, they didn't come from us, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord. Notice, we've come to some unity on this. That's important. To choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we've sent Judas and Silas, themselves will tell you the things. They're going to be giving testimony to this, in other words, by the word of their mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no great burden, no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood that was been strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. So they sent them off. They went down to Antioch. They gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. When they read it, Because you always read letters out loud. This is why Paul concludes many of his letters, Grace be to you, not just to the person he wrote to, but a Southern, Grace be to y'all. Because letters were read, read, and even reading oftentimes, uh, most often, was done out loud. So, what happened? They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas were there. They continued to prophesy, to encourage, to strengthen them with many other words. So they're preaching to them, teaching them. After they spent some time there, this is why we have a hard time reconstructing the chronology in Acts, by the way, because there's a little bit of a window here of some time, year, months. They were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them off. Paul and Barnabas, however, remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Okay, That concludes this hinge that's in the middle of the book of Acts that becomes a, how did we get here? Okay, here's an official verdict or an official uh, decision on behalf of the leadership of the church, especially in Jerusalem at this time. Now, where are we going from here? It's going to be interesting. Paul's not going to go back to Jerusalem until he's on trial at the very end of his ministry. Okay? From here on out, we're going to find that this gospel is going to even inc- going to increase in intensity of going to, still the synagogues, but to Gentile believers. And this is where we start to find the writings of Paul pick up as well, historically. I think Paul's already written, I uh, had the encounter, excuse me, that's mentioned in the book of Galatians. But we're going to find that Paul's letters now, his letters back to these churches, are going to start to get written. So we're going to start to watch, especially next week, uh, as Paul visits a city, and, and we're going to say, this is the city where Paul wrote this letter. And you can go back, if you want to, later on in the week and read that particular letter. Let me recommend t- at least one to you this week. Galatians would be a letter that I would read this week. Uh, scholars believe that it's either one of, one of Paul's earliest or the earliest letter Paul wrote. It deals with this particular um, topic, it may refer to this particular moment of history. I actually suggest that it actually refers to Paul's visit in Acts chapter eleven. That there was still this tension earlier in the book of Acts that Galatians is referring to that, and there's some tension in Acts or in Galatians with Peter, where he's already had the Cornelius incident, eat with Gentiles, and yet some of the Judaizers, these Paul uses connection with Pharisees here, and our Luke does in, in Acts chapter fifteen. Peter feels some pressure from them to not eat with Gentile people. And so he goes, okay, Paul comes and he calls him on the carpet. There's conflict between the two. And I think that's before this incident in Acts chapter 15. I could be wrong, but Galatians is a good letter to read to see how this is being dealt with as well, theologically and practically by Paul and the early church as they figure out how do we with the Gentiles and the Jewish people become one family? That's where Paul says, Galatians 3.28, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We all come to Christ and we all are merged together into one family under his name. Okay, that's a lot. I read a lot. I don't always read straight through. This is core in the book of Acts of this Gentile, this Gentile mission that God has, that all the nations will be blessed through his people Israel. If we don't get that, what we don't understand is, how did God ultimately get us there? And, and we kind of short-circuit that at some point in time. We say, oh, the church is just a part B. Um, it's it's a, a, second, a second option for what God was going to do. Okay? Thoughts or questions as we get to what's going to be a conflict again, and then a second, second missionary journey, part one, for Paul. All right, our next text I'm going to summarize a bit. Remember what happened with John Mark. John Mark, in our last text, left Paul early uh, in their first missionary journey. Okay, They went to the island of Cyprus, and then they traveled on from there, and that's where John Mark said, I think I'm going home. We don't know why. Okay, At that point in time, in in Luke's account, we don't know why. But the word there describes what looks like an abandonment of some kind. Well, here, Barnabas, the son of encouragement... Is going to want John Mark to go with them again. Paul, have you read Paul, yeah. who sometimes is pretty blunt. Paul, does, Paul and Barnabas enter into a sharp disagreement, and they decide to part ways. Question: Can God ever use our disagreement and sometimes bring about good from it? Boy, I sure hope so. Okay, and here's one of the things that I I, I want to live out and and try to try to even model in my own life, and I'm not always great at it is I want to trust that God can use differences of opinion and even differences of an understanding or differences of personality and still carry out his ultimate will. That I can disagree with people or have a disagreement, but not necessarily have a division. So they're going to part ways and yet still see one another as brothers in Christ. Now, we're also going to see reconciliation, which is also part of what I want you to see. Paul is not the flannel graph Paul. Okay, that I had as an early believer where I see him as like Jesus part two. Okay, Paul is still human. He's not fully God. He still sins. He still has weaknesses. He still does not know the the, eternal future. I sometimes see Peter and Paul that way, to be honest. Okay, so I want to recognize this. Like Paul is learning how to live his Christian life out as well. And later on, after this incident, he's going to say to John Mark, John Mark is useful to me. That's going to be 2 Timothy. We're going to find his prison epistles where he says similar things about John Mark. But here what we have is that Barnabas and, Saul, so Barnabas and Paul are going to go, want to go back to all these cities. They're going to take this letter. They want to take this report out. And so as they get ready to go out, Paul thought it, verse 38, Paul thought it best not to take with them someone who had withdrawn from them and not gone with them to do the work. So, verse 39, there arose amongst them a sharp disagreement, so much so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with them, sailed away to Cyprus. Why Cyprus? That's Barnabas' hometown, our home island. That's where they went first on the last missionary journey. Paul, however, is going to go another route. Just like persecution, sometimes the gospel is perpetuated, even sometimes in the midst of our own humanity. So Paul's going to take Silas, and they're going to depart, and now we start the second missionary journey, strengthening the churches. I don't want to necessarily belabor this um, sharp disagreement that's taking place between them, but any observations or any, any thoughts about that, reflections about that, and sometimes how God does that even in the church today? He can use us in our disagreements to reach different people, to go different places. Y'all are so quiet today. That's all right. If I'm Michael, I'm just going to sit here. Michael DeFazio, I'm just going to sit here and make y'all talk. We're just, we're just on. All right. Let me, let me go with this, start with the second missionary journey. I'm going to summarize it. Um, it's actually coming out of chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. At this point, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start summarizing, rather than reading, I'm going to start summarizing the journey as well. Okay. So going back to what we did in the second uh, missionary journey. Uh, the summary statement here is that Paul is going to initially uh, start taking this report from the Jerusalem meeting, from this Jerusalem council, and he's going to share the the news of this result and go back to some of the churches he's already established and share that good news and then check in on them, how they're doing, and continue to disciple leaders. This is church planting and church reporting all of these decisions that are taking place. So it's a different route. He goes back through Syria, which is the Roman province of which Judea is a part of. Okay? So he goes back through this, and you can look at the map on the back if you want to. He goes through the Roman province of Cilicia. He goes into Derby, which is where we ended up last time before Paul turned around and went back home. And he goes to Lystra, and this is where I want to pause. Because Lystra, if you remember, was the hometown of a young man. He's called a disciple here, named Timothy. Timothy is going to be an important figure in Paul's life. Timothy... According to 2 Timothy, Paul's letter to him 20 years later. Timothy is a young man whose, we find out here, mother was Jewish. In 2 Timothy, we find out his grandmother was Jewish, Lois and Eunice. But his father was a Greek. His father has possibly passed away, which would be fairly normal when it comes to life expectancy. We see this in Jesus' own life. Even if he hasn't, eventually Paul is going to uh, do what was common in the Roman world, and Jewish world, adopt him as an heir. Now, how do I know that? Well, 2 Timothy calls him, as well as other places, my son in the faith. Okay, my son. And 2 Timothy, I've already said this last week, is written as a last will and testament from a father to a son. What am I leaving you? What am I entrusting to you? Well, Timothy, I'm entrusting to you my faith. This sincere faith that came from your grandma, came from your mother, and came from our ancestors, came from the ancient writings, the scriptures. And I'm entrusting it to you to then entrust to other faithful men who will entrust it to other faithful people, who will entrust it to other faithful people, and down the line, a family inheritance. What is the greatest family inheritance we have? It's the inheritance of faith. Thus, last night at the father-son's retreat, what is part of what I'm wanting to do? I'm wanting to entrust to this soon-to-be young man, 12 going on 13, this legitimate faith, this sincere faith that says, I need you to have this deep conviction in Jesus. I can't have it for you now that you're transitioning from child to young man. Uh, Timothy's young at this point in time, and Paul is going to invite him along with Silas along on the journey. You need to remember that as they start out, Paul has already faced persecution. Likely, Timothy and his mother, grandmother, came to Christ on the last missionary journey. Paul was being stoned as he came into town and as he's leaving town. He knows knows the risk of following Paul. I need you to see that. Timothy knows that to follow Paul and ultimately to follow Jesus means to pick up your cross and follow Jesus sometimes more than what we do. And one of the things that this text always reminds me of is that this this discipleship journey was never meant to be easy. And in fact, if it is easy, it may be because of, of our compromise, because of a watering down of our allegiance to the gospel. Revelation puts it this way, and I know we're not in Revelation, but the seven churches, you're either compromising or you're facing difficulty you're either one of those two. And, and so how, how do we, when we come to Jesus, do we have these expectations? I know when I was uh, at the position of coming to Christ and making this decision, there was a song that was being played. I have decided to follow Jesus, right? No, turning back, it was like the Restoration Movement Christian Church, like anthem as well as several other movements, anthem of the 80s and 90s, and maybe even earlier than that, 70s, 80s, 90s. And, and yet I remember this song, the cross before me, the world behind me. If the cross is before me, I should expect it to be Suffering this side of resurrection, so I love this about Timothy. Okay, he comes. Notice here, Paul's going to have Timothy circumcised. He's in his twenties, probably. Just going to put that out there and not talk about it a whole lot. Okay, um, so if I'm going to talk about following Jesus being uncomfortable, I'm maybe going to start there and go, yeah, uncomfortable. But can I just mention to you that at first, at first blush, coming out of Acts chapter 15, you go. Wait, what? You see what I'm saying? Wait, I thought the decision just a minute ago was that they didn't need to be circumcised. Okay, but Paul also knows that to have this Jewish young man, Jewish in the sense through his mother and grandmother, going to other synagogues first and then to Gentiles, that might actually get in the way. And so Paul has him circumcised. I mean, Timothy's making a pretty big decision here to follow Paul. And there's a, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable. Let me tell you, I don't want this to get in the way of you having an impact on other people. So Timothy, I don't know how this conversation went. Timothy circumcised. Now there's another young man, I don't know his age. He may be older than Timothy, named Titus, who is not half Jewish, who is not circumcised, And he ends up in Galatians as the example, the exhibit A, sorry for that imagery that's there, okay? Um, But he's exhibit A of a Gentile, full Gentile, who can come to Christ without being circumcised. So Timothy and Titus kind of become exhibit A, B, sorry for that again, okay? But they become exhibit A and B of examples of the gospel, but also Timothy, this example of saying, okay, but I don't want anything to get, I don't want a stumbling block to get in your way of coming to Jesus, so this heart that is here is really important. So Paul says things like to the Jews that became Jew, uh, to, you know, all things, all people, okay, Jews, Jews, Gentiles, Gentiles, and, and so Timothy is in many ways this example of someone who's going, I will suffer for the sake of the gospel. I say all of those things to say that, um, and yet yeah, I also want us to discover like Paul's missionary strategy or church planting strategy was to disciple a new generation of leaders. Uh, we took time one time in in a devotion I did at a dorm. It was at Christian College. I had four young men read the list of names associated with Paul's ministry. Now, we call Paul a missionary, and I don't know, Paul would call himself that a sent one, an apostle, so a missionary, Uh, but he's he's also a church planter. He's planting churches, but he's also a discipler. I don't want to, like, miss out on, like, Paul is legitimately discipling people. This is the commission that we have from Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations, and I'm with you. Baptizing them and teaching them. So Paul's strategy. So we read this list of names of all the people associated with Paul, and it's a, a conversation that a list that took like 10 minutes to read. That's that's a powerful, and that's not even every name that, that Paul is intentionally discipling. So one of the questions I have for myself is this: like, what's the list of names of the young people that I'm pouring my life into discipling so that I can be like what Paul does with Timothy? With Second to me, that, that last will and testament, entrusting my faith to someone else, who will then be faithful to entrust their faith to someone else, who would then be faithful to entrust their name to someone else. So one of my encouragements this morning is to ask you to reflect on Timothy and Paul's relationship and come up with your own list. Like who are the two or three core younger, younger people that I'm pouring my life into and trying to hand over the keys of my faith, that entrust the keys of my faith to the next generation? Or the two or three people. Maybe it's grandson, granddaughter. For Paul, it's a, it's a surrogate grandson or a son. It's an adopted son in the faith. So it doesn't have to be your biological son, but a biological daughter. Who, who are those people? And maybe there is a list that grows. And maybe over the course of time, this is because of Paul's relationship with Timothy, this is one of the disciplines I'm trying to do in my life. I have a journal that I keep every year, and in the first 10 pages of that journal, I list in that year some of the young people that I'm intentionally trying to pour my life into. Now, not in groups, not like a class, but one on one. Who are some of the young people I'm trying to say, like Paul, here's how you live as a person or a, a, a son or a daughter of faith in the world. So Paul takes Timothy on. Now, I, I wonder what this is like for Timothy. Oh man, like an internship. I gotta go live with, like, I gotta be with Paul. Could you imagine this 20 year old guy? I gotta go, I mean, you know what Paul does? Now, Paul's going to take Timothy with him, and notice what happens in Paul's right after this. They're going to go through Phrygia. We're going to notice, we're going to move quickly, okay? It's a Roman province. Galatia, does that sound familiar? As in like the letter to the Galatians, okay? But it's a province. That letter is to a bunch of churches. And then Paul's going to be prohibited by the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit from going to two regions. Notice, Asia and Bithynia. And you're like, wait, what? Like, why would the Holy Spirit say, hey, don't go there right now? And here's one of the things I want to suggest to you, because the Holy Spirit knows more than we do, first of all, and the Holy Spirit has a better yes for Paul. So it, sometimes the Holy Spirit will give us a no, not yet, right? And this is going to be the case for Asia, because Paul's going to go there. You know what's in Asia? Oh, I don't know, a city called Ephesus. Do you think that city is going to factor into Paul's um, like life a little bit later? Yeah, he's going to spend years of his life there, write a letter there. Okay, it's going to be an important city. So it's not that the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I don't want you ever to go there. It's I have a bigger yes of where I do want you to go. Now, I, I don't know that I've had this exact experience. In fact, I would say, I don't think I've had this exact experience where the Holy Spirit is, is barring me to where it becomes this obvious, no, this is the Holy Spirit. But I do feel like at times, God has answered no to some of my prayers. And it sure felt like it was the Holy Spirit saying, no, that's actually not where I want you to go. And I'm like, really? Because I really thought, like if I was mapping this out, could you imagine Paul with the map strategically going, I think I need to get to Asia because I think Ephesus is going to factor in to be a key part of this missionary strategy. You know what comes in and out of Ephesus? Everything that comes in and out of Rome goes through Ephesus, all roads, all roads, I mean, that kind of strategy. I can kind of be like Paul in some of that, going, if I had a plan, here's what my plan would be. And the Holy Spirit sometimes goes, that's not actually where I want you to go. When I was in college, I actually thought I was going to plant churches in California. I'm a Colorado kid. I love adventure. California sounds great. Let's go there. And we had a kind of moment. My wife and I did. Of course, when you're early married, you try to make decisions together. Well, that changes things, too, because sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks through that as well. And so we had an option of going to California. And really, the options are wide open. And then an opportunity came up to go to Illinois, the middle of a cornfield and a soybean field. And, and we, in our prayers, and I don't know if there's the Holy Spirit. I mean, again, I'm trying to be discerning. But I also trust in the sovereignty of God where he knows our, like California or Illinois to me seemed like an obvious choice. And yet we ended up 10 years in this little, little church of, you know, 400 people in a town of 6,000 people for 10 years in Illinois. I would have never wanted to go, if I were putting the map on the board, I would, I would take that off the table every single time, to be quite honest. Now I loved it and God used it. But we see the Holy Spirit sometimes does things like that in our lives. We see that in Paul's life here. Now, why is this? Ultimately, we come to what we see in chapter 16, verses 9 through 40. There's this vision, this vision that Paul has of a man from Macedonia. Now, on your map, Macedonia is actually easy to remember because it looks like a little M sticking down into the sea. Okay? This is a region where we're going to find churches like the church in Philippi. Does Philippians factor into Paul's missionary journey and strategy and Paul's life as well? Yeah, it does. I love the letter to the Philippians. One of the things I love about it, Paul starts out with the letter to the Philippians, "Um, you are my partners in the gospel. The church in Philippi is going to stand by Paul when things get really difficult. Paul's gonna need this church in Philippi. They're gonna finance Paul and his missionary journeys even into Athens and other places, Corinth especially, where Paul doesn't want to take money from them. The church, in the church in Philippi is going to be a very generous church to Paul, this Koinonia fellowship. So when the Holy Spirit says no, guess what? There is a Holy, the Holy Spirit is also saying yes to some other things, and he sends them in. So the Holy Spirit is going to send them through the island port of uh, Samothrace to Neapolis, um, new city. Uh, and now we're in Macedonia to this Roman colony. Uh, military holdout of Philippi. And we're going to find some key people there. There's not a synagogue in Philippi. That's weird. So we, we discover Paul as he enters into Philippi. Instead, he goes to a place of worship, a place of prayer that's by a river. Notice, it's mainly women who are there. And there's a woman by the name of Lydia who's going to show hospitality to them. She's a dealer of cloths. She seems to have her own business. Okay, She has an industry there. She is going to be someone who comes to Christ. We find a slave girl who's going to be there. Now, this girl reminds me actually of um, one of my earlier trips to Haiti. This slave girl uh, is able to tell fortunes, and she's, a, she's an economic uh, income for her, for her masters, for those who own her. And she looks like some of the demoniacs that Jesus encounters, doesn't she? And like Jesus, Paul is going to, in this moment, call her out and then heal her. But this is going to cause an uprising. It kind of reminds me in a weird way, and and sorry for this parallel, of Jesus casting uh, the the demoniac that we hear the name Legion into the herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs runs off the hill, and then everyone is not only afraid of Jesus, you would be too, but they're also mad at Jesus because of this economic impact of what has taken place, okay? That happens here in Philippi, and so then there's opposition that is raised against Jesus because of this, so... Paul finds himself in prison. Again, we're summarizing some things here that happened in Philippi. And we find Paul. And what's going to happen to him? He's going to be dragged. He's going to be beaten with rods. He's going to be imprisoned. And the accusation is going to be he is teaching an illegal religion. Notice what I said. How did we get here? Acts 15. Where are we going to go from here? The division between those who would be the Judaizers and those who are now Christ followers is going to widen in the Roman Empire, and Paul finds himself in prison. Now, prison in the ancient context was not, like, we it was not the punishment. Prison was a holding place for, for the punishment or for the verdict. But Paul and Silas, I love this scene, and you know, you know this scene, perhaps. Paul and Silas are there. It's not comfortable. They've been beaten with rods, and they're singing, the word there's hymns, songs, singing psalms, Some of the earliest songs of faith, maybe even of the church. They're singing in faith. And we have this dynamic to where, again, there's this echo of release. Uh, We mentioned Peter's release from prison being somewhat of an echo of the resurrection. There's this echo of release. But the Philippian jailer is freaked out at this moment. Why? Because in the ancient context, we see this with Herod and the other jailers we've seen. Those who lost a prisoner, we're going to see this with Paul Shipwreck, would then be given the sentencing of the prisoner that they lost. So he's ready to fall on his sword. Okay, I mean, you lose all of these people in this prison. And Paul says, no, no, no. So think about, I want to summarize this by going, think about the Holy Spirit just a moment that says, hey, I don't want you to go there yet. But I I do have another plan for you, this Macedonian vision. Because in this vision, the Holy Spirit, God knows, that if Paul goes this direction, who's there now? Lydia, by the river this little slave girl, this Philippian jailer, and his entire family, that no has a greater yes. And Paul pays attention to that dynamic that plays out in this particular journey as we play out. So we're going to summarize in a couple things. And then this is why we, we divided up the second missionary journey into two parts. So Paul is going to then travel to Thessalonica. We know the letter to the Thessalonians. What are Paul's earliest letters? Galatians, we've already mentioned. Guess what his other earliest letters are? The letters to the Thessalonians. Okay, he's going to go to a synagogue. We're going to find the same thing we've seen there. Okay, some are converted, jealousy, and a mob. Why? Because he's proclaiming that Jesus is king. And there is no king, according to Rome, other than Caesar. Then they're going to go to Berea. This is that phrase we started with. Those were Bereans, notice what they did. They studied the Word of God with eagerness. This is where we started today. I love this particular, this particular phrase. Like they dove into Scripture to say, is this, is this what God has been doing all along from the Old Testament? And there's an eagerness here to discover that. So we end with this, this dynamic. We're going to go on. Paul, in fact, is going on to Athens. That's where we're going next week. So let me give you that forecast. But I, I love this about Timothy. So here's where I want to end it. But Timothy, that young man, remember how eager I, I portrayed him to be? Oh, man, I'm going to Paul. This is going to be great. I'm going to intern with Paul. Paul's like, hey, I want you to stay here, actually. Wait, what? Okay. Like, you want me to stay here? Yeah, I, there's some work that still needs to be done here. I need to go on to Athens, but I need you to stay here. Like, Paul's actually going to do this with Timothy often, and I think it's going to help Timothy to grow in his own faith because he's actually going to give Timothy responsibility, and it's going to increase in responsibility. Over and over again, Paul's going to do this with Timothy, and it's, like, it's just like Jesus sending out the 12, isn't it? Hey, watch me do this. Hey, you go do this. Hey, watch me do this, 72. Hey, y'all go do this. Hey, uh, watch me do this. Hey, I'm going away and I'm sending the Holy Spirit, so y'all go do this. Okay, Paul is actually duplicating discipleship that we have seen in Jesus' life modeled for the disciples. And Paul's now going to do it in the life of Timothy and life of Silas and the life of others. That's what we're going to pick up when we get back together next week. Thanks for hanging with me a few extra minutes. We'll see you next week. And I'll answer your question. Yeah, what's your yeah. question? <laughs> As you were talking there, especially toward the end, uh, I've been a coach. Yeah, kind of my, my whole life in sports and stuff, and uh, and some in the ministry. And that just reminded me of what a coach does. Uh, yeah, he takes you know maybe whether it's one team or but it's one team at a time. Yeah, and coaches them and teaches them. First thing is in the classroom. Yeah, you teach. You take it onto the, the the practice field and you practice practice. Then you go out. Yeah, absolutely. And then at the end, you're saying, Timothy, whoa, you're not quite ready yet. Yeah. So you're not a starter, maybe. And, yep. and I don't know. That's just kind of the way I, I think. Yeah. It's, it's just parallel. No, it's, it's really helpful. And I'm thankful. I mean, early, I'm just going to use my ministry days. Earlier on in ministry, I had a minister who was in his 60s and 70s, and um, I did funerals with him. I mean, it's super helpful. Like, I learned how to do a funeral and like, hang out with people who are grieving. And I'm, because as a 20 year old, I hadn't had anyone close to me pass away like I needed like those difficult circumstances. I needed someone to know how to do that. Parenting a teenager or two of them now. <laughs> like I'm one like anyone older than me, I'm like, "Hey, any volunteers to tell me how to do this because I'm like trying to learn it." Okay, so that's that disciple. so it's not just discipleship that says, "Here's what to believe." It's, "Here's what that means and here's how to live that out." Like Timothy two, two. Yeah. It's teaching man to teach. Them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, friends, we'll see you next week. We're going to dive into Paul's uh, speech in Athens as he's going to direct, uh, directly talk about the, Jesus to those who are uh, Greeks, those who are Gentiles. So we'll see you next week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.